Well, brethren, as you find your seats, look into your Bibles and find Revelation 19, and we'll begin with verse 11. Now, before we read our passage, verses 11 to 21 of Revelation 19, as I've mentioned many times over the past weeks, chapters 17 to 19 form the sixth of seven cycles that describe the time between the first and second comings of Christ. The book of Revelation is similar to the prophets in the Old Testament. There's repetition. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, there are seven cycles that describe the time between Jesus' first and second comings. And we're going to finish, God willing, tonight the sixth of those that will leave the seventh uh, to start next week in chapter 20. Now, verses 11 to 21 as we'll see here in a moment, describe Christ as a warrior king. And I want to consider it under these headings, and then uh, let me give them to you, and then we'll read the passage. We're going to see in verses 11 to 16 the king's description, and then in verses 17 and 18 the king's supper, and then in verses 18 to 21 the king's war. So the king is described beginning at verse 11, And then you have the supper that's introduced in verses 17 and 18 in contrast to the supper of the lamb that we saw last week. And then in verses 19 to 21, you have the war. All right, notice verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now obviously, this passage that I've just read, verses 11 to 21, is in stark contrast to that which we considered last week. Salvation was last week in verses 1 to 10. Damnation is this week in verses 11 to 21. 
Now notice, first of all, the king's description. It's most evident, isn't it, brethren, that the warrior king here described is none other than Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest uh, that John provides several things with regards to his description. First, you find his names. Now I saw, verse 11, heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Perhaps we can say he's here described as the warrior king judge. Now, four times in verses 11 to 16, you may have noticed, we read about Christ's names. In verse 11, he's called faithful and true. Those are names. That's why they're capitalized, at least in the New King James. And then in verse 12, he's described by a name. This is perhaps the the least clear, uh, but I want to suggest one of the most beautiful little statements found in the whole book of Revelation. But he's described by a name only known by himself. We want to come back to that. And then in verse 13, he's described, or he's called, the Word of God. So we know most definitely who this is. And then, of course, if there's any doubts, Lingering, verse 6, puts, it, puts them to rest, King of kings and Lord of lords. These are all different names of this warrior king who's riding upon a white horse, which underscores purity. It also underscores victory. And he's also one who's a righteous judge. Now, the question then becomes, in verse 12, what is meant by a name known only by himself? Well, here we have to back up for a second and say that while there's a name mentioned in verse 12 that's only known by himself... There's other names, both in verse 11 and 13 and 16, that are revealed to us. So how can his names be revealed to us? Because he's called faithful and true, verse 11, the word of God, verse 13, king of kings and lord of lords, in verse 16. How can he have his names revealed and yet concealed? Now just keep in mind, brethren, that by name is meant... Christ himself. Christ's name and Christ himself are one and the same. So what I want to suggest to you to be somewhat simple here, what we find in verse 12 is the qualification that while we can know his names or name, either of those are proper, we cannot fully comprehend his name or names. In other words, we can know something about Christ, but we cannot fully comprehend Christ. Brother, nobody can fully comprehend God. By comprehend, it's meant to grasp or understand or know. None can comprehend God but God. If you and I could comprehend God, we'd be God. We'll never comprehend God for all eternity. Because 
If, if, if we could ever comprehend God, even in heaven, then that would make us God. No, we'll grow. I think, I think we'll grow in our understanding of God. Our understanding of God when we go to heaven will be perfected in that it won't have any error in it. But I think we'll increasingly come to know God because God is infinite and we are finite. Even in heaven, we will be finite creatures and God will be the infinite creator. So while our understanding, our grasp, our knowledge of God will be enhanced for all eternity, we'll never fully comprehend God. I think this is kind of a qualification in a, in a context where there's a number of names mentioned. And these are beautiful names. Faithful and true, the word of God, King of kings, Lord of lords. And yet, John says, while God in his condescension has, through scripture, revealed himself to us, Never forget, while we can know God, we can never fully comprehend God. I think this is what verse 12 says. In fact, our confession, you may know, says this about God, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. Only God can comprehend God. Because he's incomprehensible. That's the big term, isn't it? The incomprehensibility of God. Brother, what a tremendous thought that is. What a great attribute or doctrine that is that oftentimes is lost sight of, to put it politely. Few people talk about the incomprehensibility of God because we like to speak about God as being revealed and we ought to speak about God as being revealed. And we like to speak about God as knowable, and we ought to speak about God as noble, but God is noble and unknowable at the same time. Remember what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that they would come to know the love of God that what? Surpasses knowledge. He wants us to know something that's unknowable. How do you put those together? But with the doctrine that our fathers always had in their confessions, like ours, I just read it, concerning God's incomprehensibility. It's the same thing that Jesus said, if you remember, in Matthew eleven twenty seven, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. In other words, only God knows God comprehensively. Right? Only God knows God comprehensively. And then he says, and to the one the Son wills to reveal Him. In other words, while we cannot comprehend God, we can know God. And you have both of those beautifully tied together, don't you, in Matthew eleven twenty-seven. All right, so we, he's, he's giving us a description of this warrior king. First of all, we've seen his names. I, I do want to come back to that in a second. But secondly, notice his person, verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Now, these, um, these descriptions are borrowed from the earlier chapters of Revelation. On a number, a number of occasions in the, in the opening chapters, if you remember, uh, Christ is described as having eyes like a flame of fire. Now, I think this underscores purity, but probably more than that, it describes Christ as all-knowing. His eyes Peer into the darkness of men's hearts. 
Nothing goes unnoticed. By, and, and, and it ties back to the fact that he's the judge. He knows everything, brethren. This one who will judge the living and the dead has eyes like a flame of fire. He's not like these judges uh, that we have that uh, often wrongly convict some who are innocent. And most often they don't judge properly those who are guilty because they're fallible. Their eyes aren't like a flame of fire. They have darkness in their eyes like we all do by nature. And even those who are Christians, we have it in part. But Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire. He sees into the deepest recesses of a man's heart and he's able to judge the thoughts and the intents of his heart. He knows our motives, our intentions, our thoughts. He doesn't just judge our actions. He judges our motives. And then it says that he... Uh, still verse 12, on his head were many crowns. Now you might know that we get several hymns from that phrase, many crowns. And we want to sing one here in a few minutes. But I think the many, well crowns of course underscores authority, sovereignty, and power. And the fact that he has many, it means that he has all authority, sovereignty, and power. Because if you remember, was it the beast, I think, had ten crowns, which meant many, but wasn't, it wasn't as many as the warrior king. Ten is, ten is a lot. But on, the only one in the book of Revelation, that is, or in the Bible, that's described as having many crowns, as if there's, it's infinite, unended, is this one who is the king, warrior, judge. So he has all sovereignty, he has all power, he has all authority. Remember what Jesus said before he left back to heaven at the end of Matthew's gospel. All authority, many, many crowns, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So this is the king who has many crowns. And then notice thirdly his clothing, verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. Now it's debatable as to why John puts this name, Word of God, here in verse 13. It certainly is a divine title. It may not seem like that, but there's but there's divinity in this title. The Word of God is similar to the Son of God, right? When we, when we think of the Son of God, sometimes we think it means something less than God, but that's not how the Jews understood the phrase Son of God. It meant for them, and rightly so, the Son of God. That is, the Son is equal with the Father. And so to the Word of God, it means the Word is equal with God. The Word of God. The Son of God. It's a divine title. And I think it's simply underscoring the fact that this one is alone worthy. This one alone is qualified for the task that's coming. A bigger question, though, is what's meant by the fact that his he's, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, when you read through, well, let me put it this way. It's most probably 
are reference to something that he's going to mention down in verse 15. And if that's true, the blood that's on his robe in, in verse 13 is the blood of his enemies. All right. In fact, I, I, I've told you this before. I, I actually do have probably, I don't know, 12 excellent commentaries on Revelation. In fact, I brought two I hope to quote from if I don't forget. And they're all excellent. They're very similar. They actually read each other and they regurgitate each other. And they all basically are built off of William Hendrickson, which is the smallest but the most trustworthy of all 12. And out of 12, 11 of them say this blood is the blood of Jesus' enemies. And it's very hard not to say that because we're going to find out that he does have blood on the blood of his enemies splattered on himself in verse 15. But the one commentator that dissented, I'm trying to think who was it, I think it was the Lutheran Lenski. He says, the blood of the enemies comes down in 15. He says the blood in 13 is his blood that was shed as the lamb that was referenced, if you remember, uh, last week back up in verse 7, that atones for the sins of his people. Now, brother, I don't think personally that's right. It just seems when you read through the whole passage, it's most likely the blood that's referenced in verse 13 is the blood that's referenced down in 15. But boy, it does make for good preaching to think about it. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. He did shed his blood. We don't have to uh, impose that upon the, this imagery in verse 13. We just go back up to verse 7. And there's the lamb that shed his blood for us, brethren. But this is probably the blood, as we'll see here in verse, in verse 15, of his enemies. In fact, verses uh, 1 to 3 of Isaiah 63 are in the backdrop of this whole passage. And uh, we don't have the time to go there and read that passage, but let me read a little part of it. I typed a few phrases in my notes. Uh, verse 3, Isaiah 63, I have trod in the winepress alone. That goes back down to 15, doesn't it? Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I've stained all my robes. Now, those are the words of the Messiah. And if you just jump down there for a second, I guess we just consider this phrase now uh, in relation to 13. If you jump down to 15, uh, the last phrase, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. You'll remember that people... Uh, trampled upon grapes who were in a wine press, and when they did that, the grape juice would splatter up upon their garments. But the imagery here, brethren, in verse 15, which is borrowed from Isaiah 63, isn't that Jesus is trampling upon grapes, but he's trampling upon the wicked. And it's not that grape juice is being splashed up upon his garments. It's their blood. And this is this wine press is described in verse 15. Uh, the wine press of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. This is a terrible wine press, brethren. You can imagine that a, an actual wine press in olden days was a very good thing. It made wine, which was a blessing. But this one, brethren, is very opposite to that. 
This is a terrible wine press that doesn't smash grapes, but sinners. Fourthly, notice his army, verse 14, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. All right, who, who are, who's this army? Who are these described as clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses? Well, there's two options, and, and most likely both are true, the angels and the saints. That it refers to the saints in part is evident, isn't it? Because the fine linen referenced in 14 is borrowed from the fine linen back of verse 8, where it was applied to the uh, saints. But everywhere we read that when Jesus comes back, he will come back with his holy angels. Uh, for example, Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. He'll come back with all of his holy angels. But the Bible also tells us, in fact, if we were to look at Revelation 17, 14, it says when he comes back, he'll come back with his angels and his saints. And you know that Jesus even said the saints will judge the world. And I think this is what's happening here. The saints will come back with him. It's not that they're going to be equal judges. It's not like he's going to be the judge and they the jury. Jesus is the judge and jury. It's just to say that they come back with him to share in his victory. And that's why they're described as being on uh, a white uh, horses. By the way, I don't think anywhere, maybe somewhere, but it's very rare, if anywhere, does the Bible describe angels with fine linen. In the book of Revelation, it's usually, if not always, applied to the saints. It's probably a reference to the saints in 14. It's a play here in a minute we're going to see off of what's coming because there's the king and his army. We're going to see that there's Satan and his army. That's coming up here in a moment. Uh, fifthly, E, I have. We're still looking at our first point, the king's description. And that's his sword, verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. This simply means he would judge the world with his word. And that's possibly why he's described as the word of God, too, back in that verse. He would judge the world with his word and especially his holy law. Brethren, what, what defines sin? Sin is a violation of God's holy law. It's a transgression of God's law. That's what sin is. It's, it just surprises me to no end how much confusion there is with regards to this among supposedly, well, actually very famous preachers. They cannot rightly define sin. They just don't want to say that it's a violation of the law. And so they come up with all of these elaborate definitions of what sin is. Let me put it as plainly as I can. It's nothing more or less than the transgression of the law. That's sin. Because the law defines what's right and wrong. 
And so he's judging the world with his word, a sword that comes from his mouth. That's especially the law, which cuts like a sword. That's the point, isn't it? And then in verse 15, there's another a quotation of Psalm 2.9, which we saw earlier in, in Revelation. You shall rule them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, when he comes back, he's going to judge and destroy his enemies. That's what verse 15 is saying. There's really three imageries. There's this sword in the first part of 15. There's this rod in the middle of 15. And then the wine press at the end of, of 15. All basically telling us the same things, right? Just stop and think, brother. How do we interpret the Bible? I mean, we interpret any one of those three imageries in light of the other two. They're all three different imageries to tell us the same thing. Jesus destroys his enemies. And he does so righteously and absolutely thoroughly. All right, that brings us then to verse 17 and 18 in the King's Supper. And here we find a real, as I said already, stark contrast between the previously mentioned supper back in verse 7 of uh, verse 9. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Look, there's a calling to the supper, right? And look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper. There's a calling for the supper, brethren. There's a, it's evident, isn't it, that the Holy Spirit, who inspired John to write this, intends us to see a contrast. A contrast. In fact, we could even summarize this chapter, chapter 19, as a contrast between two suppers. There's the supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then there's this gruesome supper, brethren, in verse 17 and 18. Now, you have to understand, first of all, that this gruesome imagery, this gruesome imagery is taken from the Old Covenant curses threatened upon Old Testament Israel. For example, Deuteronomy 28, 26. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. All right. Now, remember, if you go back to Deuteronomy, you have these blessings and cursings. And the blessings and cursings are dependent upon the obedience of the nation. If they obeyed him, they get the blessings. If they disobeyed him, they get the cursings. Guess what happened? They got the cursings. But even though they got the cursings, as we'll see here in a moment, God in his mercy still brought back a remnant under Ezra and Nehemiah to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham that from the seed of Abraham would come Jesus. But the nation, as a, as a general rule, got the cursings. And when did they get the cursings or curses? When they were exiled to Babylon. And the Babylonians came and destroyed the, the city of Jerusalem and left their carcasses for the birds of the air to eat. Right? The imagery here, you know what, before I even go there, the imagery in verses 17 and 18 of this supper of the great God, all these carcasses 
of horses. Look, look at verse 18. That you may eat the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, horses, horsemen, all people, free, slave, small and great. That is the whole, the whole, the army with all of its leaders, everybody. This is the description of the wicked in the day of judgment. Okay? But here's the interesting thing. Verses 17 and 18 describes the battle. It's, it describes the battle as already won. Because 17 18 is, is, it, it describes the enemies of, of this king as already killed and their, and their carcasses lying there to be eaten by the birds of the air. And then in verse 19, he goes on to describe the battle. Before he even describes the battle in verses 19 to 21, he first describes the end result of the battle. By the way, this is how it's going to end. Everybody's going to be dead. That's why he ends at the end of 21, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. He's calling the birds of the air to come and to eat the carcasses of his enemies who haven't even been slain yet. Why? Because it's as good as done. That's the point. All right. So these are these are old. These are these are covenant curses um, threatened upon Old Testament Israel. But it's actually a quotation, verse seventeen and eighteen, from um, Ezekiel thirty-eight, verses seventeen to twenty. Um, and again, we just got the time to go there. Uh, did I say 38? I should have said 39. Ezekiel 39, 17 to 20. And there you have this imagery, this imagery of a, of a, of a great supper of carcasses being eaten by the birds of the air is applied to what? It's applied to Old Testament Israel when they were taken captive into Babylon, like I just said. You can go back there and read it. But the interesting thing here is, brethren, this is applied to the destruction of God's enemies at Jesus' second coming. Now there's a lot to be said about that in terms of hermeneutics. And I actually want to make a, 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 little, a, a, a little something of that here in a few minutes. But just keep in mind, while this curse had a literal fulfillment in, in, in physical Israel, when they were taken captive in Babylon, in, uh, as it's recorded there in Ezekiel 39, it's here used in a figurative, or we could even say spiritual sense. Because in, in the Deuteronomy text, where it threatens this, and in the Ezekiel 39 text, where you find it, their literal carcasses were literally eaten by literal birds. But that's not happening here in Revelation. There's no literal birds coming from heaven eating literal carcasses. Brethren, this is just figurative terminology to speak of the, of the gruesome nature of their destruction. Alright? And then in verse 19 to the end, you have the king's war. Now the term, the word war, used uh, like in 19 and other, other verses here, uh, has before it the definite article, the war. This is the war. Brethren, there's not many wars in the book of Revelation. Remember, there's cycles telling us the same thing. This is the same war that we saw in previous chapters. And it's the same war that we're going to see 
in the last cycle in the next three chapters. There's only one, there's only one return of Jesus and one war wherein his enemies are destroyed. Furthermore, let me just also say that this isn't, don't think of this war as if there's Jesus and, and his saints and the angels, and then there's the devil and his armies, and then there's this long, drawn-out conflict that takes many hours, days, and weeks. Remember, the war is done already before we even get to it. In verses 17 18, all of Jesus' enemies are dead. Their carcasses, including the horses upon which they rode, are dead. This is just highly symbolic and figurative language, as we've seen over and over again. And the problem with so many Christians is they can't be satisfied with that. They want some fanciful, ludicrous interpretation that makes for good books and movies, but for very bad theology. <clears throat> Jesus comes back and he destroys his enemies. That's a very short book and it's not going to make a lot of money. You don't even need one page. It would be a one-minute movie. Now, if you notice, again... This is symbolic language. We find the beast, verse 19, the kings of the earth, their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And then the beast was captured and the false prophet, verse 20. Now remember, those are literal beings. By the beast, it simply meant persecution, Satan's persecution of this world, and by false prophet, his deception of this world. Beast, persecution. False prophet, deception. And so when it says that they're thrown into the, it's, it, uh, at the end of 20, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, it just means to say that when he destroys the wicked, he puts an end to the works of Satan. And by the way, Satan himself in the next chapter will be cast into the same fire with the beast and the false prophet. It's just another way of saying that when Jesus comes back to destroy the wicked, he will put an end to Satan's devices of persecution and deception. Brethren, there's not going to be a literal embodiment of, of these two things. It's just simply saying that, that the, uh, the dragon persecutes and deceives the world through these agents called the beast and the false prophet. And the beast, again, refers to persecution and the false prophet to deception because you can read it right there in verse 20. Then the beast was captured within the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. In other words, they bowed down to this world that's controlled by the dragon. And again, the mark simply means that they paid homage to him. They worshipped the created as opposed to the, the creator. That's, that's again the simplicity of it. And quite frankly, that's the beauty of the book of Revelation. It's much simpler than we make it. Think about it like this. Who are these people being destroyed? 
It's those who commit fornication with the harlot. There's no literal harlot. Is there a literal harlot? No, it's the world is the harlot. They get deceived by the false prophet. There are false prophets and there are women and men who would tempt us, but the, but the harlot's not a literal woman. The false prophet's not an actual person and neither is the beast. These people in this, in this part of the chapter, brethren, who is going to be destroyed are the wicked. Plain and simple. As opposed to the righteous. The wicked have the, have the mark of the beast on their forehead and their hand. The righteous have the mark of God on their, on their forehead. There's just two types of people here. And the first, the wicked, are described as those who worship the image of the beast, who are deceived by the false prophet and commit fornication, that is, idolatry, with the harlot. And... Verse 21, the rest, that is, the wicked, were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And the birds were filled with their flesh. The birds were filled with whose flesh? With the enemies of God who were just destroyed. Thus, with the destruction of the wicked, the kings and their armies, there is the destruction of Satan's works. Now, again, we don't have the time. But this is actually an allusion back to Daniel 7, 11, 10, and 11, where you have the beast, because there's a beast in Daniel 7. The beast is, cat, is burned with fire for eternity. And it's just a figurative way to say that the wicked and the works of the devil, by which the dragon or the devil, Satan, deceived the wicked, are cast into the lake of fire, and are no more. Listen to what Henriksen said. The meaning is that at Christ's second coming, Satan's persecution of the church and his power to deceive on earth shall cease forever. He's talking about how it is that the beast and the false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. Listen to what he gets. said. He's speaking again of the beast and the false prophet. The meaning is that at Christ's second coming, Satan's persecution of the church and his power to deceive on earth shall cease forever. Every influence of Satan, whether in the direction of persecution, beast, or deception, false prophet, goes with him to hell, never again to appear anywhere outside of hell. And that's why we'll see in the next chapter... That the dragon, the serpent, that deceiver of old is cast into the same lake of fire with the, with the beast and the false prophet. All right, let me close with three lessons. One, and this is going to take it the longest and then the other two will be really short. Let us have a right understanding of the Old Testament. And here I'm expressly referring to the Old Testament covenant curses and the contrast that this passage affords us of two very different suppers. All right, just go back in your mind for a second to Deuteronomy and other passages where you have the blessings and the curses described for Old Testament physical Israel. Those were physical blessings and physical curses. And they would be enjoyed by obedience, 
and they would fall upon you for disobedience. So you would have the one by obedience, and you'd have the other by disobedience. And if you go back and read them, I can summarize them this way. The blessings, the blessings can be summarized in that God would have received them and dealt with them as a bride and all the prosperity that comes with that first supper. And then secondly, there's all of the cursings and the death associated with this second supper. Brethren, these are in essence the the, the summation of the blessings and the curses. Now remember, the blessings and the curses promised to, or slash threatened to Old Covenant Israel were temporal and typical. What would have they gotten had they obeyed? They would have gotten what? Canaan and all of the physical prosperity that that land afforded. Or for you men that are in our book study, to put a little bit more theological, no person, no Old Testament Hebrew was ever eternally blessed or cursed by virtue of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant offered temporal, temporal blessings and curses. But how does the Bible interpret that? The Bible interprets that as follows. It describes those as typical of eternal blessings and cursings that are described here in this passage. Because the first half of, of chapter 19 describes eternal, eternal blessings. And the second half, eternal curses. And so if you go back, and I, 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 we should have done this, but, and read this passage that I made reference to in Ezekiel 39, 17 to 20, where he talks about how he's going to bring the Babylonians upon the uh, wayward people of Israel and bring them into captivity, and their carcasses will be left to be consumed by the birds of the air. If you, go, and you know what happens right after that? There's a promise of Jesus coming. And why is there a promise of Jesus coming? Because... Because the fulfillment of Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians, it was also shadowed in what? In their destruction by the Romans in A.D. 70. You know what? Perhaps I can put it like this. The physical destruction of the nation of Israel, where, wherein their physical flesh was left to be literally eaten by the birds of the air, happened twice. It happened in, uh, in Ezekiel's day with reference to the Babylonians. But it also happened in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and left their carcasses once again to be consumed, their flesh to be eaten by the birds of the air. Now, if you, if you go back to Ezekiel 39, guess what? And that does, that description of them being destroyed and the flesh consumed by the birds of the air did have a literal fulfillment in the Babylonians. But it also has an actual literal fulfillment in the Romans in AD 70. And guess what? Those shadowed. Both of those, the destruction of, the, of uh, the temple by the Babylonians and the destruction of the temple by the Romans shadowed what? The destruction of this world when Jesus comes back. In other words, those curses that, were, that, that came upon 
Old Testament Israel by the Babylonians, and even, I could say, New Testament physical Israel, in that it's the New Testament scriptures, by the Romans, were shadow, were shadowy and typical of the destruction of the world at Jesus' second coming. Because there are some Christians, and I guess I can just use the name, it's the elephant in the room, dispensational, who like to <coughs> accuse us as covenantal, as believing this. Oh, you guys believe that the physical curses fell upon physical Israel, but the spiritual blessings fall upon the church. Wait a minute, that's not fair, they'll say. Well, this is how we respond. No, we believe the, the spiritual curses that were shadowed by physical curses fall upon the wicked. Who's getting eaten here in this passage? It's not just Jews, it's the world. And the spiritual, and the, uh, the spiritual blessings that were shadowed in the physical Get poured out upon who? God's people, Old or New Testament. There's just two suppers, brethren. That's the point. And so we understand the Old Testament blessings and curses, physical blessings and curses, as typical and shadowy of eternal blessings and cursings. The first, enjoyed by God's people, the first half of the chapter. The second, experienced by God's enemies, the second part of the chapter. Or perhaps I can even cast this in a different, slightly different light. We believe that there was one Israelite, one literal Israelite, who took upon himself the curses that our sins deserved and earned for us the blessings that we don't deserve. Okay, so those physical blessings, those physical curses, shadowed, typified, spiritual, eternal blessings, spiritual, eternal curses, and guess what? Christ, the Israel of God, He, by His obedience, Earn for us the blessings. And in his crucifixion, he endured the curses that our disobedience deserved. And that's why you can go to a text, for example, like Galatians 3 that says, He was made a curse for us that the blessings of Abraham might what? Fall upon us. He was cursed. He endured the curses. Why? So that the blessings would fall upon us. Brethren, why is it that we're in the first half of the chapter and not the second? Why is it that we're called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, verse 9, and we're not the carcasses? We don't make up that second supper of carcasses that God summons the birds of the air to eat. It's because Christ bore our curses that our sins deserved, and earn for us the blessings his righteousness merited. 
Brother, there's a lot to be said about how this passage, like all the book of Revelation, we could actually make this lesson out of every one of these sermons in Revelation, but I want to do it here just because of its evident and I think helpful application. Secondly, let us have a right understanding of our Savior. By this I mean, this passage describes Christ as the Lamb and as the Lion. And it describes Him as summoning His people to one supper and the birds of the air to another supper. Brethren, I really believe, I'm convinced, many professing Christians have a half view of Christ. They know him only as a lamb, but they don't see him as a lion. Stop and think, this one who's trampling upon the wicked, who's destroying his enemies and leaving their carcasses for the birds of the air, who's killing them and casting them into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. Who is this? You know, there's some professing Christians in our country and in the world, but especially in our country, who would say that's a monster. They say, if that's the Jesus of the Bible, I don't want nothing to do with him. Oh, my friend, you will have something to do with him. Because the Jesus of the Bible isn't merely a lamb, but he's a lion, and he's neither one more than the other. See, we love him, and we love him in the totality of his perfections, to put it another way. We love the fact that he's holy. We love the fact that he's just. We love the fact that he's gracious, and he's merciful, and he's patient, and he's loving, and he's all of those equally and eternally. Now, let me just quote. I know I'm going long, but uh, I want to quote just from a passage. From my second favorite commentary, I quoted from the first one, Hendrickson. This is the second best commentary on Revelation, and this is G.K. Beale. And it's entitled a shorter commentary because he has a larger that nobody ever has because nobody can read it. It's too big. So we just get the shorter one. It's like the larger and shorter catechism. Nobody reads the larger catechism. It's too large. We read the shorter. But you should read both, and you should read his larger commentary. But anyways, this is what he said. This passage offers a picture of Christ far different from, yet complementary to, the portrait of his early life presented in the Gospels. He's presented as a divine warrior executing judgment and ruling sovereignly over all. His true identity cannot be known or controlled by others. He will crush his enemies in the winepress of the wrath of God. Not only that, his saints will assist him in the execution of this judgment. How often do we consider the full biblical picture of Jesus? The mystery is of one who hung defenseless on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins and calling us to serve him in weakness, yet who will one day ride forth to execute vengeance with us alongside him? A true understanding of Christ can only come as we consider all of these elements of who he is. And then finally, let us have a right understanding of this wicked world. My friends, there's coming a day of judgment when every wicked person, and by that I mean every unsaved person, will be judged. Don't believe the liberal lie that there's no such a thing and don't believe 
the other related lie that there's no eternal conscious torment because they like to go to passages like this, right? Oh, they're killed and they're cast into the fire and, and these different imageries to try to teach the lie that there's no conscious torment, that you're just annihilated and that it ends there. No, my friend, it just begins. Because the eternality of, of heaven is dependent upon the fact that hell is just as eternal. If the torments of hell are temporal, then the joys of heaven are the same. Because the same terms are used to describe both. The supper here is the same in duration as the supper there. They're eternal. And so let me close by reminding you of this phrase back in verse 9. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I skipped over that phrase last week. I can't remember why. I think I got excited and just skipped over it. Sometimes that happens. You're preaching away and you get excited. You might just jump over half a page of notes. And then you remember it when it's too late and you're trying to think, is there any way I could weave this back in there? We are very privileged tonight, all of us, to be called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here's what's necessary. And here's the only thing necessary is for you to know you desperately need salvation. That you're hungry, that you're thirsting for salvation. And salvation that's bought by the Lamb. The Lamb. You know, here's the irony or the interesting thing about it is the Lamb invites us to this supper, but guess who's the... He's not only the one who invites us, but he's actually, he's actually the one who served. He's actually the main course, if I can put it that way. Because we come to eat what? We come to feast upon who? But the Lamb. And so if your soul is hungry tonight for salvation through a crucified God-man, then hear the words of the word of God. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Come to Christ by faith. Turn away from your sins and lay hold of that one who is not only the lion, but he is, blessed be God also, and equally the Lamb. Well, let's stand and sing. One of those hymns that I made reference to, and it's hymn 218, and we want to use the first tune, which is the more familiar one. <laughs>